Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And I'm Christine Van Gein, the Canadian Constitution Foundation's litigation director. In today's episode, we'll talk about the understandable but misguided calls to shut down the despicable anti-Israel rally in Toronto. We'll share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a look at some of the worst opinions about the law in Canada, and this week they are bad. Uh, And finally, we'll discuss whether you have a human right to the hairstylist of your choice. But first, let's talk about the latest development in Ontario's Greenbelt controversy, Christine, give us the update. Look, I don't know if people still care about this, given the current situation in Israel and the atrocities that we've seen committed by Hamas. But I think that that Joanna and Josh, both of you are going to talk about that. So I'm going to focus first on a local issue. Uh, I also wanted to talk about the Green Belt because it follows up on a conversation that we had on a, the podcast a few months ago. So just as a little bit of background for those of you who maybe aren't from Toronto, aren't from Ontario, or who haven't followed this story much, The Greenbelt is basically this swath of privately owned land in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area that through legislation, a previous Ontario government protected from development. So it's privately owned, but its use is restricted. And some of that land, like, look, some of it is ecologically sensitive and there's a good case for conservation, but some of it is basically empty fields across the road from housing developments. And with the housing crisis in Ontario and in the GTA in particular, many people have made the case that parts of the Greenbelt should have its protected status uh, removed and that development for housing should be permitted. And I'm pretty sympathetic to that argument. I live in Toronto and the cost of housing is crazy here. So this argument, I mean, it's convincing to me, but clearly it also was convincing to Premier Ford. So he and his government undertook a plan to remove certain lands from the Greenbelt protection so that housing could be built. The issue, though, was which lands would have development permitted and how would the government pick that land? And there have been some suggestions for months that the process for opening that land for development gave preference to the friends and allies of the government and of the premier. And it gave preference to those who successfully lobbied the government to their own advantage. Because obviously, if you buy that land that you can't develop, if you buy it cheap because it's not developable, and then suddenly you can get it developed, the value of that land increases tremendously. So people were going to make a lot of money on this. So a few weeks ago, as we discussed on the podcast, the Auditor General's report found a few things when they, the Auditor General looked into the Greenbelt process. But for the most part, my view of the AG's report was that it was kind of a nothing burger. We all think that something fishy was going on. And as I said, I support opening the Greenbelt, but the process needs to be fair. It can't just be, as a suggestion has been, that you know the premier's buddies get their land developed or that, as I've also seen suggested, that there may, were maybe some favors uh, exchange. But that is not at all what was found in the AG report. I thought the AG report was pretty uninteresting. It basically found that the process for removing land was happened too fast and that the political branch intervened to make the process fast and short. And that 
uh, the, you know, some lobbyists went to a gala and sat at the same table as the housing minister. And they also found the AG found that lobbyists had sent in proposed lists to the minister's office of land that should be removed from the Greenbelt. And then the minister's office forwarded that to the bureaucracy, which is honestly like pretty par for the course of how lobbying works. And the other finding was that almost all of the land that was picked for Greenbelt removal was picked by the political part of the government. 21 of the 22 sites that were considered for de-greenbelting had actually been proposed by the minister's chief of staff and ultimately 15 were de-greenbelted. So, you know, we all think that there was influence from developers in the process. The question is just how bad was that influence? Did anything criminal happen? And nothing criminal was really alleged in the uh, Auditor General's report. But now there have been some new developments. A bunch of people have resigned, including the housing minister, including the chief of staff uh, who had forwarded those lists for for land that should be degree melted. And now we, this week we learned that the RCMP has launched an investigation. It's an RCMP investigation and not an Ontario Provincial Police investigation because the OPP recused themselves. The OPP is is seen as politically pretty close to Ford. And the OPP also does the premier security detail. So they thought there was this appearance of conflict, I guess. And this week, the RCMP announced their decision to open an investigation. And Ford's office has said that they will cooperate with that investigation. As for what you know potential crimes might be uncovered, it's unclear still at this stage. I still think something stinks, but the the RCMP has a, a job to do uncovering that. What the attorney, what the auditor general's report said there, they said there may have been a, a breach of the public service act, you know, maybe. Uh, but when we think back to a previous scandal uh, with the McGinty liberal government, in that case, the, the government, uh, some officials, uh, political officials were investigated for breach of trust. Ultimately that was dropped. Uh, and there were aides, government political aides, who were charged with mischief and unauthorized use of a computer. That was in the gas plant scandal. And what happened was a huge number of emails were, were deleted. So these are all things to keep in mind when we think about what the RCMP might be looking for. I, as I've said, I suspect there's a lot more to the story than what was in the attorney uh, Auditor General's report. And that is why I think the RCMP is investigating. I think there's a big sense that there's more to this, but time will tell about what they actually end up announcing they're investigating and what they potentially uncover. Uh, Joanna, any reaction to that? Well, I just, I don't understand why uh, the Auditor General, if there is more to the story to uncover and we need to like scrape off the shoe even more, like just purely from like a kind of libertarian perspective like all of these different investigations and inquiries and reports are expensive and like what why do we need to have I understand the RCMP has different investigative tools but like I would have thought the auditor general interviewed all of the relevant witnesses um so I just don't really understand why we need to take another crack at this um that's more an indictment of the auditor general than an exoneration of the Ford government which I agree has been highly shady 
Um, and but it's not sure what it's not clear which better options we have for leadership in Ontario, which I think Josh will speak about now. So, Josh, you had some thoughts about uh, the alternatives in Ontario politics at the moment. Yeah, I do want to talk about that. But before I get to it, I just want to note, you know, this is a criminal investigation. And so that suggests that there was uh, some some evidence or some tip that something illegal might have happened. But we don't know who is alleged to have committed this supposed crime. We don't know whether there was a crime committed. We don't know if the RCMP will find enough evidence to even warrant charges. So all we've got right now is an investigation. And you know, we don't know if the premier is in any real legal trouble, but he's certainly in political trouble, uh, considering that he just recently apologized for this land swap and promised to undo the whole thing. And this was basically uh, to reverse sliding polling numbers that appear to be falling as a result of this simmering scandal that we don't really know all that much about. So you know, this scandal is bad news for Ontarians because I think, Christine, you were getting into this a bit. This Greenbelt swap, it was a very small amount of land, um, you know, about 0.4% of what was protected. And that would have been replaced with even more protected land in other places. And it would have led to 50,000 houses getting built that Ontario desperately needs. You know, a big chunk of this land is out in uh, Pickering, an area that I drive through fairly regularly. And it's just like empty fields surrounded by huge highways so it seems to make a lot of sense to build there um and like i said i don't have that much to say about the legal issues but i do want to get into some of the politics because as a former journalist who covered a couple of ontario elections i do feel like i have a little bit of insight into that you know first of all and this is not an original thought martin regcon of the toronto stars made this point and so have some other people doug ford's brand his sort of secret sauce is that He's really good at convincing regular people that he's on their side and people that know him personally, you know, I don't know him at all, but they'll tell you that Doug Ford is sort of the real deal. He really does care about like the little guy, but then this scandal, this sort of murky scandal scandal involving rich developers is kind of the worst thing that you could possibly happen to that brand. It's like the opposite of that brand, even if there's no, you know, evidence at this point that he personally profited in, in any way. And I've heard from like potential Ford voters in my own circle that they're done with Ford as a result of this, like even before they know all of the details. And it, it's it's pretty clear too that, you know, some people in Ford's own party are done with him because in addition to the housing minister that Christine mentioned, uh, Monty McNaughton, another minister has also uh, left and he's gone to the private sector. And this just seems to be to, you know, avoid association with this scandal um, because he's he's seen as like a possible successor to to Doug Ford. So why why be uh, tied to the government if it's potentially going to fall? But at the same time, like Ford's been written off as dead before back in his first year in government, and he recovered from that. And the next election is like a long way off. So maybe if there's no criminal charges and or maybe if the charges are not that closely connected to Ford himself, then he can recover from this. And one big reason I think that he could survive is because the Ontario Liberals look poised to choose this new leader named Bonnie Crombie, who also appears a little bit cozy with developers. And to be clear, there's nothing, there's no evidence that I've heard of that 
Miss Crombie has done anything wrong, but just like Ford, she receives a lot of campaign donations from developers. And that just makes sense because, you know, she's the mayor of Mississauga, a big city outside of Toronto. And being mayor gives her, you know, some sway over what developments get built and which developments don't get built. And by the way, in her case, it's like mostly don't get built. CBC published this article recently that suggests Mississauga is on track to build only 29% of the homes that it needs to meet its 10-year provincially set target. And that puts them at like the very bottom of municipalities in the speed of housing construction. You know, for example, Toronto is is at 90% of its uh, provincial target. So on the one hand, you've got Ford, who looks a little shady, maybe in bed with developers, maybe not. But Crombie is also getting donations from developers. And unlike Ford, she doesn't appear to be getting all that much housing built. And then the final factor in all of this, of course, is the Ontario NDP. But the general feeling in Ontario is that they're not a real threat because Ontarians tend to see them as just too radical. And their new leader, Marit Stiles, she doesn't seem to have a handle on some of the more extreme radical MPs. Like just yesterday, there were two NDP MPs on Twitter, like making excuses for the Hamas terror attack on Israel, which is just abhorrent. And, you know, it looks like that one of them actually attended the the hate march, that's not confirmed, but there's pictures that appear to be this MPP attending one of these hate marches on, on Monday. That particular NDP MPP has done this kind of thing before, like celebrated terrorists. Um, and this kind of radicalization always tends to like sink the NDP's chances. So it's crazy to make predictions this far out from an election, but I totally would not write for it off yet, um, especially considering who he's, who he's running against. Joanna, um, let's talk about your he news headline now. It's a uh, it's a really depressing one, but we have to talk about it. Yeah. So obviously, this is a Canadian constitutional law podcast. We are not here to cover the Israeli conflict, the massacre that happened in Israel on Saturday. I would recommend uh, Barry Weiss's podcast, honestly, where she's talking to a lot of people and uh, getting a lot of stories from people who are directly involved on the ground. Um, but we do have to talk about it. Um, and just before I go into the news headline, I just have to say, your Jewish friends are not okay. And I've never said that before in my life. I have been on the verge of tears constantly since Saturday. I feel terrified. I feel horrified. I think all, all humans with uh, a compass for empathy, which we'll, we'll get to, there are some of us in our society that apparently don't, which adds to the horror. Um, but for Jewish people, these scenes of uh, young Jewish women shoved into trucks like sardines, Jewish babies in cages, um, like these rhyme for us, these resonate for us. Um, and the, the horror is just, it, it's so visceral. I've never experienced anything like it in my life, to be honest. So anyways, of course, as soon as we heard the horrifying news on Saturday morning of pogroms, massacres, uh, which happened in Israel, uh, almost on cue, like almost simultaneously, there were groups in Canada that were preparing to celebrate these atrocities. Um, some of them were styled as Palestinian freedom rallies, um, but it was very clear that they were also endorsing and sympathizing for the harder tactics. I think I saw a tweet from just some random on Twitter saying, what did you think decolonization meant? Did you think it meant lectures or a book? LOL loser. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the thinking there. 
there was an Instagram post that was announcing the rally that was held on Monday in Nathan Phillips Square, downtown Toronto, um, which calls the Hamas terrorists heroic and celebrated the Zionist hostages captured. Of course, those hostages being boobies, children, women, uh, all civilians that were literally in their beds on a sunny Saturday morning um, for Simchat Torah. So I'm just obviously very disturbed by this. I'm disturbed by the rally that was held on Saturday night in Mississauga, where you saw men chanting Allahu Akbar, um, the countless individuals on social media who have shown themselves to be so devoid of basic moral architecture that they are celebrating one of the, the clearest, there's no factual dispute about this, that it was an unambiguous act of human cruelty. Um, and so right away over the weekend at CCF, we were discussing um, the legality of these marches and rallies because there were people that were saying maybe maybe these are illegal. So and some of these people were people in government. So, for example, Toronto city councillors Brad Bradford and James Pasternak wrote to the mayor, Olivia Chow, and they urged her to, and I quote, do what is necessary to prevent an unlawful pro-Hamas rally. Um, held at Nathan Phillips Square, including by uh, denying these protesters a permit for public space. Um, they also pointed out that there is an event manual produced by the city that suggests permits would not be issued for events that endorse views likely to promote discrimination, contempt, or hatred. And then Josh was telling me this, uh, that on Monday at the rally held in uh, the pro-Israel rally held at uh, Mel Lastman Square, that Olivia Chow made an announcement that an emotion bringing an exclusionary zone, or I can't remember if it was inclusionary or exclusionary, uh, different people quoted me different things around synagogues and religious schools was coming. And we don't really know what she means by that. I think that she mentioned she was going to bring the motion today, Wednesday, in City Hall. So we'll be sure to address that if it happens. Um, and so, look, while the desire to shut down a hateful rally, a pro-Hamas rally, is obviously understandable, obviously I understand the sentiment, um, but the fact is, is that city bylaws or city-produced event manuals are superseded by a right to freedom of peaceful assembly, a constitutional right to free expression um, that even protects the most vile amongst us. And the Toronto police put out what we thought was uh, a well-balanced statement in advance of Monday's rally. And they correctly noted that the constitution, including section 2C, freedom of pre peaceful assembly of the charter is the supreme right of Canada and it supersedes any municipal policy requiring a, a permit. And we've talked about this, that we're not really convinced by this. You you must file your paperwork and get a permit. And um, I guess we're putting our feet to the fire and showing that we really mean it when we say that we support the right to free speech. Um, so some legal intellectuals, including friends of ours, were musing on the possibility that maybe this reached the threshold of, quote unquote, counseling terrorist acts which is a crime under Section 8301 of the Criminal Code um, and thus uh, should be forbidden. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of this. It's true that the crime of counseling terrorist acts does apply internationally, um, but it's, it kind of comes down to the question of what we mean by counseling. Uh, I did a review of the case law and that's really not defined. Um, and no doubt that to Hamas, 
these images of crowds that formed over the weekend across the world, London, Sydney, Toronto, New York, uh, praising its actions are probably useful from a PR perspective. I don't see how simply showing up at a rally, rally and chanting free, free Palestine occupation is a crime, um, which uh, individuals were doing right outside my window on the weekend. Not, not very pleasant. It's pretty remote from actual terrorism. Um, and so to be clear, anybody who is going to lend their voice and energy to support a movement that committed these atrocities is morally broken or at best misinformed, extremely naive. I don't think most of these people are terrorists. And judging from the news coverage, they seem to be a sort of gross mixture of people praising Palestinian re resistance, praising, quote unquote, decolonization, um, condemning uh, so-called Zionist oppression. Um, and for sure, there were repugnant elements uh, uh, who chanted things like death to Jews. I don't believe this happened in Canada, but we all saw in Sydney that there was a crowd chanting uh, gas the Jews. But look, in a street protest, you can't separate out, you can't parse out the merely broken and duped from the actual murderous terrorists and the criminal law, which, of course, imposes the state's highest uh, restriction on liberty, which, you know, you get thrown in jail. Ultimately, it really requires this level of clarity and precision. So now, to be clear, I'm not saying just, you know, let's throw up our hands and, and see what happens there should possibly be arrests. It's true that generally peaceful protest is protected under the charter rights to free expression and free assembly. It doesn't mean that unlawful acts might not be committed in the course of exercising these rights. So the cops have the right to arrest for uh, breaches of the peace, taking part in a riot or mischief. These are pretty general police, uh, general crimes that have been applied in a variety of situations. Um, in Calgary over the weekend, there was a man who was a counter-protester who was loudly uh, confronting a small pro-Hamas rally, and he was charged under the broad police power to prevent breaches of the peace. And then we have hate speech in Canada, uh, for better or worse. This is speech which rises to a particularly high standard of encouraging intense detestation, vilification, and calumny against a particular group. Um, this is a crime, uh, and given that it's pretty subjective to recognize when you're seeing uh, hate crime, most uh, municipal police forces in Canada have specialized units that have been deployed at the protests to make or gather evidence that could lead to arrests later on. And it would not surprise me, given that most of the pro-Hamas rallies happened in Arabic, um, that arrests may be coming in the maybe uh, coming in the coming days after Arabic speaking officers have a chance to look at some of the footage. Acknowledging the rights in a free society of these sympathizers, of these terrorist sympathizers, does not mean that we're letting down our guard or our vigilance in denouncing and tracking them. I've always seen this to be quite the contrary. And I'm a Jewish person who was taught from birth that anti-Semitism has always lurked amongst humans and always will. It's the most ancient form of discrimination we know of. And so allowing these individuals to gather on our streets to uh, express their views allows me to see and know how many and which of my fellow Canadians chose to spend a holiday Monday 
jubilantly celebrating the murder and capture of elderly women, children, and other innocent Jews. Uh, I want to see their faces. I want to hear their justifications. There was a woman who flat out said at Nathan Phillips Square this weekend that um, that the murders were justified. And if we don't, if we use the criminal law to, to ban these protests, it doesn't make these sentiments or these people or their repugnant views go away. It just drives them underground where they can fester and become even more dangerous. And then finally, if some of these people who I'm sure exist um, progress down the line from being peaceful protesters to actually aiding and abetting hate crimes or even terrorist acts abroad, um, allowing them to march in public could create circumstantial evidence that later could be used to prevent them from becoming citizens, to prosecute them if they commit or conspire or attempt to commit terrorism. Um, I don't have that much faith in our intelligence service, but I certainly hope that CSIS um, was watching what was happening in Nathan Phillips Squares on Monday. And then finally, in a free society, it doesn't mean that you can't name and shame, denounce, refuse to support businesses, refuse if you're a CUPE member and you saw some of the vile comments put out by CUPE over the weekend, refuse to pay your dues. Um, there are many other remedies in a free society to denounce evil when we see it. So Josh, uh, I know that we were in touch over the weekend. You went to Mel Lassman Square with Christine. I was too upset and in rough shape to even leave for that. Um, so what are your thoughts about all of this? There's, there's just so much to say, but um, my first thought is, you know, I do agree that we need to like call out these people that are making excuses for this, that are saying that this is just decolonization or this is resistance or this was justified or um, somehow, you know, this, the, the Israelis had this coming. This is just like the purest form of evil and people who are saying that need to be, need to be called out. Um, you know, that included like professors, law professors here in Toronto, it included law professors at my own university, it included um, a student organization at, at uh, the law school that Christine and I went to, Osgood. Like, this is just outrageous. And um, these people are exposing themselves to have like really, really low morals, in my opinion. And um, it's disgusting. Uh, I do want to talk a bit about like the the rally and the police response, and I agree with like every single word of what what you said um, just now, Joanna. Um, and I'm normally pretty critical of police, uh, but I watched the press conference ahead uh, of the pro Hamas rally and the pro Israel rally, and I do think they got it generally right that you know people do have a right to protest, but that they also have a job to do, which is to make sure that um that anybody who does commit a crime is arrested and that you know things stay non-violent and peaceful as much as possible and that uh people who want to go out and demonstrate are are safe an important thing that people tend to forget about the right under section 2c of the charter to freedom of assembly is that it protects peaceful assemblies it, it includes the word peaceful written right there in the text there's not a lot of case law about the line between what assemblies are peaceful and what are not. This was a big question during the um, trucker protests, which struck me as quite peaceful. But, you know, some people have made the argument that um, that uh, in some ways it wasn't peaceful because of either the, the really loud honking or um, the um, 
use of the public space. Uh, but one thing that is clear is that, you know, when people start to get like physically violent, when they start fighting each other, threatening each other, the assembly can lose its protection and police can can shut it down. So I think that's important for people to to understand. I also want to say that, you know, like I, like you mentioned, I, I did go to this rally um, in North York and the police seemed to do, be doing a pretty good job of pr protecting the people that wanted to to gather there, you know, thousands and thousands of people gathered there to grieve. And um, the, there were a handful of, um, you know, nasty counter protester pro Hamas people, but the police did manage to sort of keep them away from the, 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 the families, the kids, the elderly people, the, the people who had, had gathered to denounce this, this evil act. I am a little bit annoyed at Toronto police though, because, um, one thing they did was shut down a couple of the subway stations, like the two closest subway stations to this Mel Aspen Square, plus all of the roads nearby. So, you know, it was really, really hard to get there. You had to walk about 30 minutes in both directions. And there were elderly people trying to go and show their support at this rally. And that would have been even more hard on them than on the rest of us. It's, you know, possible that there was like some credible threat against those particular subway stations, but the police said earlier in the day that they didn't know of any particular threats. So I'm a little concerned that police just, you know, shut down these subway stations because it was more convenient for them. And that's not okay because people have a right to protest. They have a right to gather and police in Toronto, especially are doing, seem to be doing their best to make it difficult for people to get to certain rallies or protests. And they did this earlier uh, with the convoy, the freedom convoy. Every time people tried to get together, they would shut down streets and say like, oh, if you want to go to this protest, you know, park several kilometers away and take a, take the subway or, you know, walk. In in this case, they closed the subway. So I think if, if police are going to um, be dealing with protests like this in the future or rallies like this in the future, they need to be a lot more careful about um, closing closing down streets and subways. And if there is some specific threat, they need to let us know at least afterwards. Um, and just one last point, I, I wanted to say, like going to this rally, it was really good to see that it wasn't just Jewish Canadians there. There were also a large number of Indian Canadians. There were a large number of Iranian Canadians. And so it was nice to see that the Jewish community in, in Toronto seems to have pretty broad support. Christine, um, I ran into you at this rally too. Um, what's your take? My take is that you must be a very slow walker because I took the subway. I got off at the Finch station with my four-year-old and it took us 18 minutes to walk. So <laughs> I'm judging you a little bit, Josh, that there, it took you so long. <laughs> you were there earlier when I got there. There were like crowds and throngs of people. So yeah, I, I mean, I'm my not way. I'm not, yeah, sure. I'm, I mean, I'm not as, uh, I, I don't care that the subway was shut down. Like I went quite early because I went with my son. Uh, I wanted to show him what was happening. Um, I obviously have been very protective about like what, what news we're showing on TV in the house and we're not watching it around him, but my family is, is Jewish. I'm not Jewish, but my husband is. And it has been a really emotional few days for him. Um, and he has really complicated feelings ab about what's happening. Um, he, 
has for talked to me about this 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 fear that he had about going to the rally because he was afraid it wouldn't be safe um he has been raised to think i think we're seeing accurately that a lot of the world hates jews and to not speak openly about his judaism and it's re- it's been really painful to hear him talk about that because that's my family that's my my children uh who are who are not jewish but who have a jewish father and it's it meant a lot to us to be able to go to the rally because watching the footage that we saw coming out of Israel and these atrocities perpetuated by Hamas against children the same age as my own, I have been devastated and I have, I'm completely powerless. And one of the most disturbing things has been to see that the people, there are people who walk among us, Canadians who support the use of rape, murder of infants, torture against innocent, completely innocent Jewish civilians because they are Jewish Israelis. And I find that highly, highly disturbing. And that there's there's people who are in positions of power who teach at law schools and Jewish students are, are in school now with pe- professors who feel this way about their students and who've who justify the murder of their own family members. So I have been completely powerless to do anything. And the only thing I could think to do is was go and show my support for Israel and for the Israeli people in this time when we're seeing Jews under siege, Jews being murdered and people in our community supporting it. I, I mean, I'm, I saw people with, you know, posters about Palestinian liberation on the subway on my way to the, to the rally for Israel. And I don't want to get in a confrontation with someone like that when I'm traveling with my child. The only thing I can do is express my love for the people in Israel who have been subjected to torture and violence and hatred. And I was really proud to join 15,000 other people at Mel Lastman Square to share that message of love and support for Israel and for the Jewish people. Um, so, I mean, that's not really a legal take on on what happened, but that's the only thing I felt like I can do. The only thing I can do to counter abhorrent speech is to express better speech. Okay, that's that's my take. Let's take a break now. And when we come back, Josh, you can tell us about your news headline, which thankfully is a less heavy topic. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. My news headline this week is is certainly less depressing than than yours, Joanna. Um, so mine's about this woman in Nova Scotia named Michelle Lindsay, who was apparently dropped by her hairstylist after attending one of those gender ideology protests last month. And she was wondering whether that's a human rights violation. So Michelle Lindsay, whose Twitter handle says she's the People's Party of Canada Lieutenant for Atlantic Canada, 
posted a message last week from her now former hairstylist and it read, Hi, Michelle, I just wanted to reach out to you and let you know, unfortunately, I don't think I'm the best match to continue being your hairstylist. Our salon is an extremely inclusive space and we pride ourselves on being allies for the queer community. Two of our hairstylists, many of our clients, went to oppose the rally. After having discussions with them, they no longer feel safe and respected in your presence. Now, Karen, I mean, Lindsay was very upset about this. And so she took to Twitter to complain and ask, is this Canada? After participating in the Million March for Children, I was dropped by a service provider, hashtag human rights violation. You don't actually know this, Joanna and Christine, but I was recently dumped by my personal trainer who claims that he just needs to, you know, focus on school. But then I saw him at the gym uh, training other guys and he's all over Instagram posting about his workouts with other guys. And so, you know, I kind of feel for this woman. What, did he, Do you know why he dumped you? The same reason all personal trainers dump me, which is that they don't think that I'm taking it seriously enough. <laughs> anyway. I mean, so... I might, that might be justified. Yeah. What's your deadlift? <laughs> Maybe it's not up to stuff. Snuff. <laughs> I think I feel like I have like a, a, a fitness disability and it, it people need to recognize it. But anyway. It hurts, okay? <laughs> we we um, also have a story that maybe is for another day about me possibly getting canceled by my yoga studio where I'm a teacher, but we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> oh, we'll have happen. to talk about that someday. Well, that's that's a good teaser for next time. Anyway, so so the, the comments on this story where this woman is concerned that it's a human rights complaint that her hairstylist doesn't want to cut her hair anymore were, were, were pretty funny. I'll just read one of them. So this woman says, We've turned into a Nazi state where if you don't think exactly how others think, you're cast out. After reading your story, I unfollowed my colorist on Instagram for fear of the same thing happening. I hope you sue them through the Nova Scotia Human Rights Tri Tribunal. Now, this was funny to me because like, how could your hairstylist choosing not to cut your hair be a human rights violation? Like we just talked about um, like a real, real human rights violations in Israel. Um, and this woman's concerned about uh, having to find a new hairstylist. Then I remembered that in some places, discrimination based on political belief or ideology actually is outlawed by human rights acts. And so I looked this up and it looks like this woman's in Nova Scotia. I'm not really sure, but um, the Nova Scotia Human Rights Act suggests it is possible for someone facing this kind of scenario to successfully make a human rights complaint. To be clear, like this is not legal advice. I'm not this woman's lawyer, but she may potentially have some sort of case here. And I say that because Section 51A of the Act prohibits discrimination in respect of the provision or access to services. And that includes, you know, all the normal grounds that you see in human rights acts like age, sex, religion, disability. But it also includes, quote, political belief, affiliation, or activity. And there's a bunch of exceptions, none of which seem to apply. But weirdly, I, I did a quick search of the legal database Canly to see if this comes up very often or if there's any precedents related to, you know, hairstylists dumping people for having certain political views. And it doesn't actually seem to come up that often, which is surprising to me because you'd think if people knew they could make complaints in Nova Scotia for alleged political discrimination that 
everybody would be going after like their hairstylists or restaurants or hotels or whatever. In case you can't tell, I'm pretty skeptical of this idea. I think it's, you know, ripe for abuse. And I'm not really convinced that we should be extending this to more human rights acts. Garnet Jenis, who strikes me, by the way, as a very smart MP, has proposed that political belief or activity be added as prohibited grounds to the Canadian Human Rights Act. Um, he writes on his website that he's proposing this because Freedom Convoy protesters were discriminated against on the basis of their political beliefs by having their bank accounts frozen um, during the Emergencies Act invocation. And to be clear, I think freezing bank accounts was like extremely serious and unconstitutional. And we at the CCF are, are challenging the invocation of that act, which we believe was not legal. But I don't think this solution of, you know, adding political belief to the Human Rights Act is necessarily the best way to get at it. I do think like maybe it could be useful in workplaces where, for example, someone was uh, fired or disciplined for donating to the Freedom Con Convoy GoFundMe. But at the same time, like, do, do we really want people um, to be forced to serve customers who have like extremely abhorrent ideas? You know, should should a Hamas supporter be guaranteed the human right to a haircut from an Israeli hairstylist, for example, you know, I don't think so. So I think in a free country, you should be able to just, just say no to customers that you don't want because you disagree with their political beliefs. Um, Christine, what do you think about this? Should political beliefs be protected by human rights codes? No. <laughs> so I did a, a show on this on my television program, Canadian Justice, where we talked about whether or not political views should be protected under human rights legislation. I interviewed the a law professor from Queens named Bruce Party. He's like this based law professor. And then I interviewed a libertarian uh kind of intellectual activist guy named Matt Bufton, who runs an organization called the Institute for Liberal Studies. So one of the questions I posed was, you know, if you have a kitchen, a restaurant, and there's a guy who comes in who's a Nazi, he's like, yeah, that's my political ideology. I'm a full on Nazi. That's my view. You are, should be allowed to fire the Nazi. You should be able to say, well, we don't want to have a Nazi in the kitchen. We don't like that. And that's totally fine. I think that I don't really think that there's a problem necessarily going to this march. I don't think that that's inherently homophobic. I think there's a lot of people who might have gone to that march for a variety of reasons. So perhaps this hairstylist is overly sensitive. I don't know. I don't know the views of this client, uh, but the hairstylist is allowed to be sensitive. But Party, who's this based based law professor, his perspective is that these human rights tribunals are too activist, that they are they do too many things. So, yeah, let them deal with political expression. It will end up destroying the entire system. And then that is better because then we won't have these activist human rights tribunals stepping over the bounds and doing too many things. The system will become completely unworkable. And that is kind of like his end goal. So, I mean, even from that, I mean, that perspective is a little out there. I don't agree with it, but I think it's an amusing take on why political expression should be protected. So it's kind of odd that a libertarian would hold a view that, that, political ex political opinion should be protected under the human rights code but it's because of this 
devious plan of his to destroy the entire system. <laughs> so um, classic party. Yeah, that is very classic party. So that episode, if anyone's interested, you can watch Canadian Justice on on YouTube or on the news forums website and that episode's available. Joanna, anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, just shout out to Bruce Party. We certainly don't agree on everything, but he just always takes it there. I mean, look, this is just this is not a close case for me. I would even say, like, for example, this was the the SCOTUS uh, U.S. Supreme Court d- decision this summer that um, a Christian website designer had the right to refuse to make a gay wedding website. And of course, that's a closer case in Canada. Clearly, um, discrimination against uh, sexuality is prohibited. I have always just seen that kind of similar to my argument, this Hamas stuff. If you think that a web, that a graphic designer is homophobic and offensive, you can boycott them. You can write a petition. You can denounce them. um, You can start a GoFundMe. Like it's just, this is not the state, the state. So private individuals can be offensive and vile. And it doesn't mean that the state gets involved. So very short sighted of this uh, Karen or whatever her name is. Yeah. A hairdresser wants to part ways. Um, they have every right to do so. And I think it's uh, very short sighted to propose. Yeah. I'm not quite in the burn it down party camp on this. So no, political expression should not be protected under the human rights code. Um, Christine, I know that you have an exciting update from last week in Vancouver and our hearing. So why don't you let us know what happened? Yeah. So I got back from Vancouver a couple of days ago. I was there for our hearing in our legal challenge to vaccine passports in British Columbia. The case was a challenge to the vaccine passport system for failing to create a workable system for medical exemptions. These were the vaccine passports that you needed to go into restaurants. You actually needed them. I kind of forgot about this. You needed them to visit private homes. Like if you wanted to go and see your grandma, your grandma was supposed to check to see that, make sure you had a vaccine certificate, which is like completely bonkers. So we had three women in our case. One was a teenage girl, two were women who were unable to be vaccinated for medical reasons. First of all, the court decided to hear the case. They, The government had been arguing that our case should not be heard because the case is moot. The vaccine passports have not been enforced for 17 months in British Columbia. And we argued the case isn't moot because the, the, you know, the government could bring them back. The court ultimately decided the case is moot but that they should exercise their discretion to hear it anyway. So they 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 cut some of the people out of the case. This was actually three different uh, cases that were being heard together. So they heard our case and they had a special interest in the story of Erica, who was this teenage girl in our case who developed pericarditis, which is a form of heart inflammation. And the, on, the orders only permitted Erica to get exemptions on an activity by activity basis. So she, in her affidavit had listed a bunch of things she wanted to do, like go to a craft fair, go to take a course uh, from Red Cross, go to her swimming, swim coaching, go to restaurants with friends, go to her grandmother's house, go to her boyfriend's house. And each time she wanted to do one of those activities on the face of the order, she was required to apply every single time she wanted to do one. And there was no way if something came up on short notice that she would actually 
have that approved in time. Like say there was a funeral she wanted to go to and the court really engaged on this topic. Um, at first they pushed back, like, how is this discriminatory on the basis of disability? It's discrimination on the basis of her vaccine status, not on the basis of a disability. And of course that's not the correct characterization. The reason for her vaccine status is because she has a disability. And they also pushed back. The government said she doesn't even have a disability. They said she has pericarditis. That's not the same thing as a disability. Well, of course it is. It's a medical condition that she cannot help. That is a physical medical condition. And it's extremely painful and requires, you know, certain therapies requires her to do things um, to reduce some physical activity because of pain associated with her heart condition. So it's absurd for the government to make the argument that it's not a disability. And the the government picked up on this, this uh, line of argument from, or line of questions from the court that this is a differentiation on the basis of vaccine status. But the 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 court, I don't know, they didn't seem to be buying it, even though they had raised these questions. Sometimes the court will ask questions to push back on arguments and see where things go. So I think in I think Erica's case is probably the strongest one or the one that the court seemed the most interested in. So the hearing went on for three days. I attended two days in person, but on the third day, we had a security threat, which uh, I won't talk too much about because it, it was kind of stressful, but there was a person with a serious history of violence who had showed up at court wanting to talk to the lawyers and the parties involved and the judges. And the 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 court had enough concern that they posted a sheriff in the courtroom to ensure the safety of the proceedings. But I did not feel comfortable remaining in the room. We had already concluded our arguments at that point. So I left the courtroom to watch the proceedings from my hotel room nearby uh, and uh, continued to live tweet the proceedings from there. But it added to it was some excitement. Uh, it was some excitement I would have preferred not to have experienced. But I mean, I, I really cared about this case. So I wanted to go there to attend in person. But ultimately my physical safety is, is very important to me. So I thought I would prioritize that and watch the proceedings from the government, the, the, the arguments from the government from my hotel room. Uh, so that's it. That was what happened. Uh, everyone always asks me how long until we get a decision. The general answer is we usually expect about six months, sometimes more, sometimes less. So maybe six months from now. So that's it. Let's move on to bad legal takes for the week. Josh, let's start with yours. My bad legal take goes to the BC Human Rights Tribunal, which has for a third time decided that a restaurant or bar owner has to pay the same retired cop who claims he has the disability uh, post-traumatic stress disorder thousands of dollars for violating his right to roll joints on the bar or on tabletops. Yes, you heard that right. The BC Human Rights Tribunal says that it's discriminatory on the basis of disability not to let this cop roll his medical marijuana exactly when and where he wants to, to roll it. So this time he actually won $10,000 in compensation, compensation for the, quote, injury to his dignity, feelings, and self-respect. So what happened here is this pub manager 
um, told this guy, like, you know, we have a rule against rolling cannabis on the bar and on the tabletops because it bugs other customers and it smells bad. But um, the pub manager said, you know, you can do it in the washroom. You could bring pre-roll joints. You could smoke them outside, whatever. But you just can't do it right here in the middle of the bar. And this complainant, um, he told the tribunal that he couldn't he couldn't accept these accommodations of pre-roll joints because he never knows in advance when he's going to need to smoke a joint. And therefore, he has to, like, roll it in real time. And he also couldn't accept this like bathroom rolling accommodation because like, you know, bathrooms are dirty and also because it was stigmatizing to people like him. And so the person who adjudicated it actually wrote, quote, his accommodation banish banishes him to the bathroom as though preparing his medication is something he needs to hide. I agree. This accommodation has the effect of perpetuating stigma about him because he is a person with a disability. And so this pub manager also like they argued that um, the real reason for the ban was that he was rude or belligerent, but like the adjudicator didn't buy this. And I just think this is so stupid. Like even if the law says that this guy has a disability and that cannabis is his treatment, I don't see why like a bar owner should have to accommodate him doing that out in the open. Um, they actually had perfectly reasonable accommodations for him. And so it's, it's just crazy to me that like people can bring and go before the tribunal and over and over and over again win cash awards for their supposed hurt feelings or dignity. And so my bad legal take this week is just the, this entire stupid decision. Joanna, let's hear your bad legal take. Yeah, so I think both Christine and I are going to call out some of the horrifyingly bad legal takes we saw in relation to Israel over the weekend. So I will start with Heidi Matthews. Heidi Matthews is a professor at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University. Here's what she said. Uh, she said, a lot of obfuscation about what the right to resistance looks like in brutally asymmetrical context. So classifying these attacks on Saturday, uh, or perhaps it was Sunday, doesn't really matter, as a right to resistance. Uh, there were a few uh, immediate responses to this saying, um, are you saying that an unprovoked massacre on innocent civilians lying in their beds at six in the morning is the right to resistance? Uh, she clarified, uh, and I quote, I'll leave it to the Palestinians to let us know what resistance looks like for them. So I don't really know where to start. First of all, just on the law, just to be clear, there's no principle of international law or international humanitarian law that does not hold that unprovoked, deliberate, planned attacks on civilians is justified, nor, by the way, taking of civilian hostages. That is a bright line uh, that is not permitted in any context under international law. Uh, and uh, Heidi Matthews specializes in international law. Second, Heidi Matthews, when your first instinct after seeing images and videos of dead, raped, and... Uh, desecrated women's bodies paraded on the back of a truck or seeing a video which tells a story of an assailant who live streamed a grandmother's murder on her own Facebook page um, is to sit back, stroke your chin and contemplate how this could be justified under a right of resistance. You should seriously look at your own moral compass. I have to admit, like Christine, I've been almost as horrified. I mean, nothing can amount to the images and the lives lost, but this intellectual apologism in my own circles is 
completely horrifying. And many people have said this over the last few days, but you really do see how it happened that the civilized world and intellectuals came to justify the slaughter of Jews under Nazism. And of course, this is not the only time that this has happened. This is just an example that uh, is familiar to me. Um, and so let me just say this now very clearly. If you ever see me making fancy legal arguments to justify outright evil, hold me accountable. Because there are norms, there are words, there are arguments, and then there is just human life. There's no possible end that can justify this means. If if Israel did these things, I would be out. I don't believe Israel would ever do these things because the value for life is so inherent to our culture. You saw how Israel um, was willing to swap a thousand Palestinian prisoners in exchange for one life of its soldier, Gilad Shalit. But who knows what could happen? Um, nothing can ever justify the cruelty that happened in Israel on Saturday. Heidi Matthews is a professor at one of the finest law schools in Canada um, at a university that I'm fairly sure has the largest Jewish population of any university in Canada. She should truly be ashamed of herself. Christine, uh, I know that uh, you also noticed something disturbing on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, many such cases. Uh, there, I, there, it, it was just so many examples of academics, unions, public sector unions, sort of not even just shrugging their shoulders at the atrocities that we were witnessing in Israel, but outright endorsing them. So I had many to pick from. I decided to pick another law professor because after all, this is a legal podcast. So I picked Joshua Seeley Harrington, a law professor at Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly known as Ryerson University. And he retweeted a message from an American academic. I guess he was too cowardly to make his own reprehensible statement. So he rep he retweeted a number. And he's, the, the retweet said, all scholars who have even once used the term decolonization for the advancement of their careers, please note that now is the time to show solidarity with Palestine, stand with Palestine, end all occupations. So this wasn't his own statement. This was a retweet. Um, but now... While Hamas is literally in this moment holding hostage babies, grandmothers, they've been dragging the dead bodies of raped women through the street behind cars. Now you think is the time to show solidarity? What exactly are you showing solidarity with other than for these crimes? Now is the time to use your voice to condemn atrocities to condemn some of the worst crimes against humanity that we've seen against Jews, you know, short of the Holocaust. We are seeing people calling for a Holocaust. So now is, is the time that you should be condemning that, not standing with the people who have perpetrated these atrocities. And as I said earlier, I cannot imagine being a Jewish student walking into this class with this professor. So I think we need to hold these academics accountable for their reprehensible and morally bankrupt statements. So Joshua Seeley Harrington, we see you and we see what you stand for. That's it. <laughs> That's it for me. Josh, why don't you close us out? Yeah, just before I do, I want to make a really quick comment. Like I, I fully agree. These particular professors that you've, you've uh, highlighted here, they've done this kind of thing over and over again. They are truly truly terrible people and no one should be forced to take a university class at osgood with someone like heidi matthews 
This woman has done this before. When when dozens of churches were burned down, she went to Twitter to excuse this. You know, she called this the same thing that she's saying now, which is uh, potentially the right of resistance uh, to to systemic injustice. And when people called her on this, she she responded as a settler living on what we today refer to as Canada in the context of the ongoing genocide against Indigenous people. I do not believe it's for me to decide either whether resort to violence like church burning is justifiable or tactically helpful under the circumstances. This is evil. This woman is repeatedly excusing violence and it's 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 just totally unacceptable and nobody at Oscar should have to take a class with this woman. So anyway, as you can see, I'm all riled up, but um, I'll leave it at that. So um, as usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us, and subscribe. And just a reminder that you can support our work by subscribing to the CCF's YouTube channel, uh, by following us on Twitter, or by visiting our website, theccf.ca, and signing up for our newsletter. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please click the donate button if you can. And if you have ideas for the show, you can reach out to me, Josh DeHaas at jdehaas at theccf.ca, Joanna Barron at jbarron at theccf.ca, or Christine at cvangine at theccf.ca. Thanks for listening.